Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. You can go ahead and be seated because our passage this morning is quite a bit longer than normal. And I will read that here in a moment. But don't check out. Please check in as we read the word together. We're coming from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and we're going to be going through chapter 6, verse 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivate fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, the increase who eat them, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life Year, so that the years, so the days of his years are many. That's tricky wording. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn baby is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? 
All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. So I remember, I remember graduating from high school. Uh, it was a bit ago now. Each year goes by, you're, you're counting the, the, the numbers. Uh, so it's been a while, and, and I moved to Kansas City. Uh, it was my first taste of freedom, uh, living on my own, no curfew. I, I was the house where the, the parents maybe uh, pushed a little too heavily into to rule. So I went from crazy early curfew to no curfew. Uh, no one telling me to clean my room. There's no rules. Like that sort of thing was, was my life. And, and that sounded really, really great until the reality began to set in on me of what all that actually came with. I, I don't remember the actual parts. I don't want to paint a picture that isn't true. My parents did help me a good bit, but, but I had to kick into a lot of my bills. So I had to pay portions of my rent. Uh, and then when I had to pay part of utilities, like the lights cost that much. Are you serious? Then I had to pay, if I wanted to call my homies, I had to pay for my cell phone. We didn't even text back then. I had this not color screen, this flip sprint phone. Uh, I could drive wherever I wanted and that was cool, but then it came with the realization that I drove really far and needed to fill my tank. My parents weren't gonna take care of that. I had my groceries. I love to eat out. That's expensive. I had to pay for that. Uh, I was not a smart man, so I had to pay for my beverages that I thought I needed at the, the time. This whole deal came with quite a bit of stress. Uh, for me. Uh, I had to pick up extra shifts if I wanted more money to do more things. I had to give up my Friday night if I wanted to make really good money. I worked at 54th Street Bar and Grill in Lee Summit. Friday was the, the money day, so you needed to make a trade. You wanted to do more stuff where you're going to work on Friday to make that money. If I wanted a good payday, I had to give up things, go work, decide to take more shifts. I realized really quickly that my first taste of freedom came with the realization that freedom is actually kind of expensive. Like it, it takes a whole lot more than I thought. And that realization wasn't uh, unique to me. It was just kind of the first time that I had danced with it, that I'd shook hands uh, with it. The inconvenient truth that I as a youth had to, to kind of learn, I wasn't taught a lot about money when I was young, is that what you do in many ways is tied to the amount of uh, money that you have. Uh, the, the things that you buy, where you get to go, the clothes that you wear, the, the food that you eat, the amount of times that you go out, your capacity to grasp a hold of what the, the teacher calls in this text as vapor is highly tied to the financial resources that you're able to kind of get a hold of. In my case, the, this reality caused me to daydream a lot. I would, maybe you've done this, maybe you have not. I would float in and out of what if scenarios. What if I want $1,000? Right, I mean, I didn't have a lot of bills then. I didn't have a house or anything. So like a thousand seemed on the front side like, like a lot of money. What if I want a thousand dollars? I didn't play the lottery, but that doesn't get in the way of a good daydream. Just leave that alone. And my mind would, would think that would be the best, right? That would be amazing, a thousand bucks. This would be so cool if I got this random thousand dollars. So then I would think to myself, self, what would you do with a thousand dollars? Well, self would go buy uh, some rims for a cheap Chevy Cavalier. That's what self would do. And it would be sweet. But then I'd end up thinking, wait a minute, rims, tires, mount, balance, lug nuts. And that's like $1,200, $1,300. Uh, 
What if I won $10,000? Again, I don't play the lottery. Don't let that get in the, the way. That would be sweet. I would, then I would actually be really happy. Things would be amazing. Not 1,000, but, but 10,000. That would be epic. What would you do, self, with, with $10,000? Well, I would buy better rims than I was thinking of before, a body kit for my crappy car. I would paint that car, and I would have a sound system that you could hear me a mile away. It would be epic. I, my, my dumb little car would, would have more in upgrades than it was worth. And then I would think, oh, wait a minute. That's like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000. You only were dreaming about ten. Fine. What if I want $100,000? Again, it doesn't matter how I get it. That would be perfect. What would you do, self, with $100,000? Well, I'd, I'd ditch the, the Chevy Cavalier now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move up, right? At the time, I would have liked a, a Roush Stage 3 Mustang with really loud exhaust where you could, I don't care about the sound system. I want you to hear my engine from a mile away. If you're following, this is the progression that I would do up, 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 up. And you're also understanding that I was an idiot, so I would never think about saving money. Like, I wouldn't be like, I could buy a house for this. Like, I, I didn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest it. All of my money would flow to things that I thought was cool. And, and my, my gauge then was not great. <laughs> the irony of this imaginary what-if type scenario is that even in my imagination, in the world of fiction, it didn't actually fix things. It actually did something weird to me. Those daydreams would often float from a thousand into the multi-million dollar realm. It would just keep climbing and climbing and climbing because the more I imagined I could get my hands on, the more I would actually want. And the more I could expand my vision of what I could get, it would expand what I thought I actually needed or wanted. Money didn't even make me happy in my imagination in this case, which is the irony of it. In a weird sense, I would do these daydreams as a practice of what I thought of escaping anxiousness in the world of, of financial responsibility, but it would actually rev up my heart and not soothe it. It didn't even do it in my imagination. All I could get my hands on drove me to an appetite that was even stronger for more and more and more. So what was this? What was going on in my head back then? Some would say, well, it's just an innocent activity. It's just a practice that we do. Others say, no, it's a healthy, it's a good thing. Just kind of think about and go through in, in your, your mind. But what's walking itself out in real life in those imaginary situations is a chasing of the wind and, and a love of money that was running rampant in my heart. It's hard to view money in our modern context because we deeply have entrenched in our language and in our mottos and in our mantras and even why you tell a kid to go to college it it's ingrained in the language this idea that money will ease what hurts and it'll lighten what is heavy and it'll increase your joy may even prolong your life and the preacher today in the text Solomon is going to absolutely tee off on this. This is a hit piece that he does. And he's looking to thoroughly dismantle the idea that, that money will do what you think it actually will do. Now, there's two nuances that I want to wrestle with in here, the, the overtly obvious and then the kind of hidden one. The two ways that this the love of money or wrong uh, navigation of money normally manifests themselves in our life is front just the, the, the overt love of it. This is when I need more stuff and more money and more things and more possessions and more power and more toys and down deep inside you live by the gospel of stuff. The good news of life is if I get more stuff, I can just have a better life. It'll soothe what aches. It'll be better. It will be awesome. Just 
more stuff. My life will be great with more stuff. But then the, the subtle one that is a little bit sneaky on us is the one that hides behind words like wisdom. And it's not the love of money. It is the trust of money. In one, you need more stuff to make you happy. In the trust of money, you don't necessarily need as many shiny toys. You need the security that money buys you. You need the the recession-proof mentality. You need the savings that makes you think no matter what happens, uh, I can have everything I need that no matter what wave of culture comes at me, I'm good, I'm insulated, I'm, I'm fine. Stronger retirement position, paying off the house faster, recession-proof financial plan, bulletproof savings, retiring early because I saved all this money, acquiring more rental positions, aggressively budgeting and saving. These all kind of can flow into, if we're not careful, an over-trust in in money. And I I do a little timeout, like step to the side. This is not going to be a poverty gospel, and it's not going to tell you money is bad. It's the way you treat money can be really bad. So I just want to Check that real quick. This love of money can happen in the overt ways, but the trust of money plays out in that kind of hard to see, hard to identify, don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong sort of way. I remember a family when we lived in Iowa immediately saying that my wife will know exactly who I'm talking about, and they made really good money. Like we were kind of all broke back then. We were all entry-level jobs. In this family, they made really good money, and they were obsessive about saving it like absolutely obsessive about saving it, uh, retiring early, getting able to have savings, all this. This is what drove everything so much so that when opportunities to become generous came about, when moments to, to sacrifice and feel it and show the love of Christ to other people that came through, their money kind of came about, they would give flat out nothing or next to nothing. While the people around them who really actually had nothing gave quite a bit in sacrifice, these people would say, I just don't have it in the budget. Sorry, don't know what to tell you. And they would just move on. Mind you, again, they had plenty. They had more than everyone around them, probably more than most of them combined. But the issue is they trusted in money so fully to keep them safe that they would not change their view of money no matter what came. The budget ruled the home. And the thought of saving less or having less security or less hedge fund or anything like that is just impossible for them to come off of that idea no matter what came their way. And and the hard part is they called this responsible living. In their mindset, like, hey, you guys are all idiots and I'm the smart one. This is actually wisdom. I can actually control my appetites. This is discipline. They wore the practice a little bit like a badge of honor. And, and here's the deal. Saving is wise and good and you should do it. But for them, it had become their hope. It was their God. It became the functional God that they laid their life down before. They would worship it every day on the 15th. And right every two weeks when they got paid, let me bow down before the God to make sure that I can insulate my life to where everything is fine. Can you identify maybe the proclivity that you are more naturally bent to? Because we're all... Like we're savers or spenders and it's funny to watch who, get, who married who and, and try and identify. Do you, do you know which you are? Right? I think most of you probably do, but if you don't and you're in a missional community, I guarantee you they can tell you which one you are. It's not hard to figure out which one we are. It is wise to know which one is your propensity so you can fight it, though all of us have to fight this. The text is, um, again, Solomon's hit piece on loving money. And his position to write this is unique. His qualifications are solid. 
this dude can write about this topic. Solomon ruled as king for 40 years. I'm going to throw some guesstimated, estimated numbers out at you. When he was king, he would receive as tribute, which is kind of like the, the salary for a king, every single year, 25 tons of gold every year. That's 50,000 pounds of gold every year. Uh, loose equations, a pound of gold is like $22,372. Do the math. 50,000 times $22,372. One billion, 118 million, 600,000. It's hard to even keep track of where the zeros and the decimals go, right? That's, that's a lot of money. He made that every year for a lot of years, right? Every single year. And this was just the tribute. This, this didn't count the amount of taxes that he brought in. Uh, he generated new ways to, uh, to do trade. He was the, the first guy to really get the sea trade going more than anybody before him had. All the money he made off of that. Then other kingdoms who wanted to like, suck up to him, gave him like tons and tons and tons of stuff. In the modern world, it's estimated his current uh, net worth could be as high as $2.8 trillion. I don't know how many zeros is in a trillion, if I'm honest. Like a lot, that's how much he's worth. The richest man in the world now doesn't have 10% of what he did. This guy had the money. So I told you before, if I said, hey guys, trust me, money can't make everything happy or make you happy. It can't do what you think. You'd be like, yeah, you're kind of broke. I don't think you've chased that all the way. You don't have grass in your backyard. You can't, you can't park both cars in the garage because your garage is tiny, right? You're paying off a used car. Other people are paying off like yachts and jets. Like, I just don't know that you can speak into that. This guy could. He had the ability to say, I chased it with everything I had and it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And he has the wisdom to break it down and see why it didn't work and share that with us. So he's writing about this to us. And in this writing, he he writes in in what's called a, a chiastic form. It's a fancy way of saying it's a sandwich. And that's why we had to read that long text together is because that whole text makes one work that he's doing. The, the, the fancy idea is it's a sandwich where the end point or the conclusion or the big idea are, are in the dead center. Like when we write in modern days, a lot of times we're adding up a case and then ipso facto at the end, you get your conclusion. Or maybe we think we're like hipster and cool and we throw it at the front and then we backtrack what's happened there. They put it at the dead center. So the way this text goes is going to be like this A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Proverbs at the front in the beginning. Then some examples right inside of that. Some interesting revelation. Point is dead smack in the middle somewhere around chapter 5 verse 20. If you don't understand that, you're like, why, why do you say that? And then is he, is he lost and ranting now? This is how he presented a case. And his basic case is going to be, enjoy the moment, not money. This is what he wants to tell you, and this is what he wants to tell me. He had more money than anyone. Enjoy the moment. So he kicks off with Proverbs on the front side. In the proverb, he shows a man looks out into the world, and he sees and he's bothered by the oppression of the poor, and the violation of justice and righteousness. And Solomon just goes, hey, you really shouldn't be surprised when you see that across the land. If you walk oppression up the, the kind of ladder of command, the proverbial food chain, uh, you're going to find more and more and more people who end up serving money. The instance of oppression isn't all. You're, you're often going to find an entire system of oppression because there's a ton of people who love money and they create the systems that we're in. The point on the front side is when the love of money rules a group of people, 
when they cannot find satisfaction or joy or contentment, and so they begin to chase wealth to try and get more, it's going to create a system that will crush other people to try and get what they think they need. It's always going to happen. We often tend to think about other people as oppressors. He's the bad guy. They're the villain. It's the system. It's the, the, the man. But the point is, if we live for money ourselves, sooner or later, you're the oppressor. You're not just in the system. You're not just a victim of the system. You're doing it yourself. The proverb would go like this, where the love of money is, oppression and injustice will live. So fight it in your own heart if you want to do anything. This is what we get when people can't fight their love for money. Then in verses 10 through 12, Solomon speaks even more directly into the idea of satisfaction. And this is part of the gateway. His point is simple. A person who loves money will never be satisfied with money. They go to it to be satisfied. They love it. They think it's going to do something. And yet the irony is it never actually satiates or satisfies the heart. And then a person who loves wealth, not just money, expanding wealth, it says their income is never going to be enough. This is the understanding. If you love wealth and you love, whether it's trust in or just you love money, if you love wealth, the answer of how much do you need to make to to, to make this thing float is always just a little more. A little bit more. It doesn't matter how much you make. You you, you need another taste. You need a little bit more. You're never satisfied with your income level. The text is why I gave the goofy daydream story about college. This was what was playing in my heart. Even in my imagination, I couldn't be satisfied. When we live for money, we should be wise enough to know, like, you don't love money because you think it's pretty you want to hang it on your wall, right? You love money because you think the result that it's going to give you is going to do something to you that's going to fix a longing or a hope or a desire or need inside of you. But Solomon just tells us wisely here, it can't do that. It can't serve you in that way. It can't fill that gap. It can't produce that joy. It's like tales of people who are lost at sea and begin to drink the ocean water out of thirst. Right? They, they see it and they feel this crippling thirst. And they're like, there's tons of water. Surely, surely that'll make me feel better. Surely it'll fix my problem of of, of dehydration. So they gulp in the salt water, hoping that it'll satiate, hoping that it'll soothe their need. But the horrifying reality is it doesn't matter how much they drink, it actually makes them sick and it makes them worse and it doesn't deal with the problem at hand. This is what chasing money does. You chase it, it doesn't soothe the thirst, you never have enough, and then it actually literally makes you sick. It destroys you from the inside out. It's going to be the case that he makes here. Money won't fix you, it'll enslave you, and it won't give you what you think it's going to do. Solomon adds, not only will money not satisfy you at a heart level, it's cruel because you go to it for some level of satisfaction, but his point is, ironically, I'm going to go to it to satisfy something, and it's actually going to steal satisfaction that you would have had if you didn't run after it, right? And he presents the case of it this way, uh, like the, the notorious B.I.G., right? Mo money, mo problems. If you chase wealth and you begin to get it, all of a sudden you're like, oh man, wealth is expensive. More stuff comes with more expenses. All of a sudden you end up, he says, you end up having to feed a whole lot more mouths. What's he saying? You get a whole lot of money, then all of a sudden there's like a lot of long lost cousins around. Hey, buddy. You're like, you don't love me. They they want you to feed them, to help them. All of a sudden, you got a ton of stuff that you need to to do, all to pay off the stuff that you thought would ease your heart. Now you got bigger bills to pay for the stuff that you thought you needed, and it's not actually giving what what you wanted. All of a sudden, you have to pay for, right? 
And think about this, like we're at different levels and different amounts of jobs. All of a sudden you start getting a little bit of money. I want a lawn guy. I hate the lawn. Right? Maybe you're like, I got a pool. Pools are a pain. I need a pool guy. I got a big house. I hate dusting. I need a cleaner. I need a cook. The cook did a good job. I need a dietitian. I need a tax guy to, to shore up my liabilities. I need a lawyer so that people aren't trying to sue me and steal everything that I have. Maybe you get a little paranoid or, or you get that kind of like Taylor Swift buzz and you need a security detail. The more things start to grow, the more wealth a person has, all of a sudden the more plates they have to spin and deal with and, and kind of keep going. More bills equals more weight that can crush you. Solomon says, you know who sleeps good at night? The guy who works really hard and doesn't have a whole lot. While the rich guy with a full stomach, and this is trying to say he has a ton of stuff, tosses and turns in stress and anxiety because he doesn't know how he's going to keep it all from crushing him. The other guy, you may think he's poor. He's sleeping good though. I've heard it said it this way. You know who doesn't freak out in a recession? Your, your barista or the construction worker. And the point is this, we think we need more and more and more, but the more that you chase to find satisfaction, all of a sudden it can be more oppressive and more stressing to you to try and figure out how in the world do I deal with this stuff? And then what ends up happening is with the more stuff that you get, an anxiety comes in, well, what if I lose it? And how do I keep it going? Up and to the right is the only way things go, right? So how do I... How do I keep it going? I had a good year last year. How do I chase that? This anxiety begins to, to weigh. The tail end of the chiastic structure, again, so remember there's Proverbs at the beginning and, and then Proverbs at the end. And the gist of this or Solomon's point is sometimes it's actually better to be poor. For some people, it's a fear. And he goes, sometimes it's actually better. And he, and he presents this case, which I, I really like his style. Hey, you can be rich and an idiot. Money can't buy you a lot of the stuff you may need. And, and his point as he kind of goes into this is um, you can be an idiot and not satisfied while you can be poor, not live for and love your money that much and, and actually be able to, to just relax and enjoy life and they enjoy the things who are, that are in your hands. The one who has more often struggles to find satisfaction in what they have. The next layer in on the structure is these anecdotal elements. So he moves from Proverbs to these, to these kind of stories for us. And Solomon says, you know, I, I, I've seen this example play out, and it's a grievous evil. It's awful. And I just want to say in this as we hear it, as I turn this in my head, this is a sad thing that he lays before us. And we've all seen this. We've possibly done this, or maybe our parents have done this. So don't hear this divorced from reality story. Here, this is a way that a lot of people live their life. Be, be careful. He says, in, in this example, a man keeps his riches and they end up hurting him. Because instead of getting out of an investment or a venture, he ends up making a bad business deal and he loses it all. Then he adds that the man is a father and he ends up with nothing to pass on to his son as an inheritance. Again, the example is heartbreaking. A person who loves wealth 
And yet their wealth, it doesn't satisfy them, remember? So they keep chasing it. They never have enough. So they keep pushing. They keep grinding, right? In America, we call that that entrepreneurial spirit. They're just driven. They just, they keep being driven, keep trading, keep investing, keep doing, keep making deals a little more, a little bit more, a little bit more. They can never relax and enjoy what they they already have. So they're they're still leaning in to get more until they finally lose at this uh, game of financial Russian roulette. The story that he's telling you is there are people that a hundred times they could exit their position and be fine. They have enough. A hundred times they could have walked away. They could have had a great life, enjoyed their family, enjoyed stuff. They could have traveled. They could have had nice things. A hundred times they could have quit and yet they didn't. And now they have nothing in their hands. They're left completely empty, a shell of a person who lost themselves chasing money. Now, now hear the interesting part. Normally when a man does this, they hide behind the excuse, I did this for my family, right? Many, 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 many men hide the, the love of money behind this idea that I'm trying to be a good father or a good husband or a good provider. So they begin to say things like, I'm just trying to give him a better life. I just want to leave him with an inheritance. And I'm just trying to pay for college. I want to give him the things that I didn't have. And so they end up becoming an absent father or an uncaring, unpresent mother. And then they begin to neglect their kids spiritually and emotionally and relationally. And the whole time they're, they're going, I did it for them. I did it for them. I just wanted to give them stuff. I know this is hard, but I did it all for them. And then all of a sudden they lose everything and they don't even have anything to give. Do you understand the heartbreak that he's saying? He's showing the picture of a father who robs their children of a father to give them wealth and then doesn't even have anything to give them. I did it all for nothing. I robbed you of a relationship and a father and guidance to give you stuff and I don't have anything to give. I actually did it all for me. And now the illusion of why I did it is gone too. You begin to read the stories, many, 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 many rich men do this and then kill themselves. Because all of a sudden the, the smoke clears and they realize all of that work and all of that time and the weight of what they were supposed to do hits them and goes, I traded for nothing, nothing. Solomon says this person will spend their whole life striving, working themselves to the bone for more wealth all of these years, and they'll end up coming up with absolutely nothing. They'll end up leaving the world with the same thing that they came in with. Nothing. Solomon's point is chasing money will lead to an actual wasted life. A life trying to get more to end up happy will often end up with nothing because they're only chasing vanity. They're trying to grasp a hold of things that can't actually be grabbed. In his stories, this person ends up alone and in the dark. It's a sad, depressing, horrific tale. I went there to make, I went there to be happy. I went, I went there because I thought I needed it and it stole literally everything. The other anecdotal example comes at the back end of the sandwich and Solomon gives a kind of example to make another point. And, and what we'll learn here is there's a ton of wording about family here. It's not only a family person who can do this, but there's a lot buried in here. He says there's a man who has a hundred kids. Ooh, right, a hundred kids and he lived many years, a long life. There was a day when kids weren't considered a pain or a hindrance. Let that one hit you in the eyes, it did me. When they were considered all over the Bible a gift, a blessing, an inheritance, a joy. 
So this man in the example, what he's saying is there's a man with a hundred wonderful blessings, joys from God, and he lives a long life. He's got blessings everywhere. And the picture is he not only has blessings everywhere, he has his health, full life, full of blessing. But the man's soul wasn't satisfied with the kids or the blessings or the good things that he has. The underlying idea beyond that is a man who isn't satisfied with the good things that he has will mistreat the good things that he has. Generally, a person who isn't satisfied with the blessings, especially the kids, will treat them horribly out of frustration because he feels that they're a barrier. So imagine that this man has 100 kids and he hates them all, like zero joy in any of them. You think out of one, like, I, I like one, zero joy in any of them. So he neglects them. Why? Again, because they're not filling the need that he has. And he lives in such a way where they end up all hating him. This is what the text says when it speaks of no burial. There's a tale of a man who dies, and he lived in such a way that no one cares for him, in his chase for satisfaction, he, hate and de- or he hated and destroyed and devoured everyone around so much so that he was alone. You, you, you know that dream where you're like in your funeral and you want to know who shows up? Not only does no one show up to his funeral, nobody even comes to claim his body because they don't care what happens to him. This is the example. It's not an empty funeral. Nobody even wanted to bury the body. This is what this man did. Solomon says it would have been better to be stillborn than to be this man. Now, hearing that, what what we need to understand, this is not talking about or trying to make light of loss in the minds and the hearts of loving parents. He's very nuts and bolts trying to paint a picture for you. He's saying, okay, if a life of a person is just about vanity and wind chasing and all they get is pain and frustration and sorrow, and they lived in such a way where their dissatisfaction literally made them blind to every good thing that God had given them because their appetite for more is running them day in and day out to where they burn every relationship down, they destroy and devour everyone who ever loved them, and they find no rest and no peace and no satisfaction under the sun. This life is a tragedy. Is a tragedy. His point is, what a horrific life that has nothing but pain and no rest at all. In this regard, he says it would be better if, if you weren't even born. If you didn't experience all this pain under the earth. And that's why he says it would have been better to, 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 to be stillborn than to spend 2,000 years in this. And, and what he's showing is many people use their life to believe that life is just more time to get more stuff. He goes, I don't care if you have 2,000 years, you're not going to get enough stuff to, to scratch that itch. It's not going to work for you. It actually is a gut-wrenching story of chasing money, making you a slave. No matter how much you have in your hand, all you do is destroy people and you can't even enjoy what you do have. This is what he's laid out. Then back in the text, it narrows down to the center of the chiastic structure. This is what's found in verse 18 of chapter five uh, to about uh, verse two of chapter six. And he's narrowing down towards the point. Even with all the bad and the heavy and, and sad examples, and, and hopefully we know this already, the, the preacher or the teacher in this will lean into and he will, not, uh, he, he will not hide how dark things can get in the order to help us. But in light of how bad it gets, the preacher offers us hope to pull us out so we don't end in despair. He says this, even with all the terrible stuff that I've seen out of the love of money, 
Despite the way I've seen it rob people's lives and their families and their homes, and it's blinded them to even the good stuff that they have. I've also seen something good happen under the sun. He says something fitting, meaning this is the way that we are meant to live. This is the good path for a person to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. To find themselves under the sun content. I can eat and I can drink and the lot that I've been given and the few days that I have, I'm just grateful for what he's put in my hands. Notice in verse 19, the good and fitting life is also the one that God gives them. And it says something that you have to wrestle with and not find it just a trite, empty statement. The power to enjoy wealth, possessions, and power that are put into your hands comes from God. So Solomon is saying, hey, money isn't the enemy here. Wealth isn't evil. In our day, there's this huge movement that believes anyone with power is bad and the man and too much money and too much power. And under all of that is just a a jealous heart that, that wishes they could have what the other person has. Solomon cuts through that noise. Everyone with power or money isn't an abuser and isn't evil. To enjoy wealth, possessions, and power that God has given you is a gift that you get. And if you end up going to those things to try and find your wealth, you'll be enslaved by them and you actually won't get any joy out of it. Saying the good gift is to receive the things that you get, whether you have a little bit or a lot, and have with them the power to actually enjoy them. He's teaching us here. Many think that I will go to power and wealth and possessions. And once I get there, I will arrive and be happy. I go to those things to be happy. If I can just get enough of those things, I'll, I'll enjoy my life. And Solomon says, no, no, that's all wrong. The power to enjoy your life doesn't come with, from two hands full of, of vanity. The power to enjoy your life comes from God, the Father above. The gift to enjoy things that come into your hands comes from God. We have the completely wrong lens to view the entire world in. I just got to get more stuff and then everything will be easier and I can just take my foot off the gas and retire and have fun and do all this stuff. He goes, no, no, no. The Lord places in your hands those things. I get so worried about the American dream and chasing a certain retirement because it makes us blind of what are the good things that we have now before then? And what if our health gives out before then? Stuff, creation, money, and power will never bring you what you want. God does. He's the key specifically for us in in the New Testament. We see the greater picture Christ is because if we have Christ, we have everything that we've ever need. We have a clean resume. Uh, We have a bright future. We live by his commands. We end up enjoying the little or or, uh, the the lot that we have in our hands. And eternally, we know that our needs are gonna be met. And someday the future is really, really bright. Even if I have just a little bit now, he's, he's gonna take care of me later. Seeing our families as gifts and not barriers to getting what we want is a huge part of this. Being able to sit down and enjoy food and good drink with the people we love, this is a life that isn't vanity, that isn't empty, one that God has taught to kind of receive and rejoice. Receive what he gives you, rejoice in, in your lot. This is meaning whatever he puts in your hands. Some people have a lot to have a, a, a ton of stuff in their life. And for some people, that's just not really their thing. But whatever God puts in your hands, giving you the ability to enjoy it. I was struck by this idea that a family that jumped off the page for me, 
struck deep in the, in the heart, honestly, especially with the way that I did not wrestle with having a third kid well. For me, I saw kids as fun killers. Two years, they just steal your joy. They're like little joy suckers. They just take everything. They take your sleep. They take everything that's good. But underneath of that, like, when you begin to pull that thread, see, underneath of that was a heart that wasn't satisfied, and I thought these kids are going to get in my way of chasing more satisfaction and other stuff. I could do so much stuff if they were out of my way, right? If there was no more diapers, if we could just send them to school, right? If they were old enough to, to send a, to grandma and grandpa without grandma and grandpa saying, I don't want to see those kids for a month. If they, if they could get to all of that, then we could have so much fun. In my younger years, it was a sinful, unsatisfied heart that couldn't rejoice in the gift of children. I'm not the only one. I was blind to the larger, long picture of what they give. Then look at the eating and drinking example. Can we just say he means what he says he means here? In, if you look at the numbers, right? A Harvard study was done recently and it showed 30% of families actually eat together. My sneaking suspicion is a ton of people lied on that and it's actually way less. And this isn't just of non-believing families, 30% asterisks, I say a whole lot less than 30, actually eat together with any regularity at all. And I think the bar was like stupid low. Like not every day, it was, it was probably like one or two times a week, I could be lying. It was, it was low though. Nobody sits around the table to have food and drink together. Why? Again, pull the thread. Why has this figure plummeted? It's because eating and drinking together in enjoyment are activities that hinder our chasing the wind. Often our pace of life that is actually dictated by our chasing of the wind means I don't have time to cook, I don't have time to clean, I don't have time to sit down for you. And, and I have 11, 7, and 2. Dinner sometimes makes you want to rip your hair out. There's a good joy of sitting down, enjoying good food. How's your day? What happened? What was good? What was bad? Abel, you told me eight bats. What was good? <laughs> Abel, it's not good that you wanted to punch that kid in the throat. Tell me something good. We defend not sitting around the table to enjoy the things that God goes, this is actually what makes you happy. Because we say, I don't have enough time for them. They're too stressful. And often what's going on is our, our, we don't even see that our love and trust of money has dictated a pace of life and a pattern of life that God goes, that is gonna break you. And hear me, it's gonna break your family too. You may push back, though. that seems like a pretty literal interpretation. I'm totally fine with that, right? The beauty of what Solomon lays in front of us is, is God as, as a good father has the incredible ability to keep his kids full of joy in their hearts even in the middle of a broken, busted world, and even if they don't have hardly anything at all. Joy comes from the Father of light, not from the money that you grab. Stop trying to grab it. The words are so simple and yet so profound as I read them. In the tail end, God keeps occupied those who look to him and follow him. They will not much remember the days of their life. He's talking about the unique ability of the Father to even overshadow horrific suffering and place joy in the heart of his people when we look at him. God has the unique ability to occupy your heart with joy. Do, do we believe that? And, and what does it look like? He, he's painting a, a picture here. 
And I believe the painting that he's giving is Solomon's painting a picture of a life of a person who doesn't have very much. There's explosions metaphorically all around them, terrible things and suffering. It's just everywhere. Everything looks like a terrible thing. Their life is hard. They don't have a lot of wealth. They don't have a lot of power. And God just says, hey, keep your eyes on me. Look here. You're getting ready to look off. No, no, no. Look here. Look here. And as they do, and as they're not looking at their money and their power and their possessions, God pours joy after joy after joy into their heart because they're finding their joy from him and not the world that will pass away. I, God, the Father, will occupy the heart of my children with joy and the fountain of grace and mercy and all that is good Will you look to me. This is what Solomon is showing him. And I tried all that. I ran at all of it and it didn't work. You know what did work? When I came back and saw that the Father gives me these things. Friends, I've seen this at moments in my life and then in people that I've seen. Right? One of the things, I think people can use it as a trite example and maybe not toss it back to understanding the book of Solomon. When I, when I traveled to Kenya multiple times for missions, like we went to the poorest of the poor. I'm not talking towards the capital. I'm talking at the sides of the country, people with literally nothing. Some of them had mud huts. Some of them had literally nothing, no clean water. Uh, There was no regularity to their food at all. And yet their hearts were so profoundly full of joy in the Lord. They would dance and sing. You're like, well, that's just cultural. Whatever, dude. They would dance and they would sing. And when they had food, They didn't know how often they're going to get it. They'd share it with you and say, come into my house. And they would enjoy it with their family and their friends. And they would laugh and they would smile. And there was this joyful heart out of them. By earthly metrics, they were broke as a joke. And yet God had poured so much joy into other hearts. And and this wasn't universal in all in Kenya. Some families, that's all. And there are times in days of, of my own life where things have been hard. Brokenness is pressed all in. Um... And there was no earthly reason why. Didn't have a lot of money, had a whole lot of stress. And the Lord still poured joy into my heart as well, not tied to the money or the circumstance that I was in. And this is Solomon's point. The joy that we all seek isn't found where most of us are looking. God has it. The question just becomes, do you believe it? And do you live in light of that or or do you not? See, the opposite is made Um, visible to us in verses one through three, right? Because he goes, here's this life that can be satisfied even when they don't have very much. The key is to being satisfied in the Lord. Why? Because he's the one that gives you joy, not the stuff. The backside of the sandwich. So you know what I've also seen? I've seen a person who has literally everything. Everything. God has given them tons of wealth and tons of possessions. I, I found it interesting when I woke up and I picked up my phone this morning, uh, I, I saw this online thing of a basketball player called uh, John Morant, and he has tons of money and tons of ability. And he literally wrote, I had everything that I ever wanted and I don't have any peace. He's this story. This is exactly what's happening here. A person that's rich, everything that most people dream of because they think it's gonna make them happy and yet they have all of it, but not the power to enjoy it. It's like having the box of everything and you don't have the means to get in. They do not have the ability to enjoy in their hands. Why? Because they're looking to the things for joy, which will never work. God is the one who gives you joy so you can enjoy the things that he's placed in your hands. If we look New Testament and Old, this is the battle over and over. The people of God trying to find what they need in creation and not the creator and it doesn't work. 
Remember, he puts us into the creation, says, look at me and love me and you enjoy it. We go, forget you, I want the stuff and I want to enjoy that. Maybe you're not wired that way. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It's a front to the holiness of God and it will not work. Now, Solomon has been, has been stacking up evidence and making a, a case against the love of money. Now, us as the hearers, we like a jury get to deliberate, not if he was wrong or not, we deliberate whether we're going to listen or not, whether we're going to live inside of this or not. This becomes our current situation. Will you hear the teacher? Will you hear his more warning that, that money won't give you all that you need? Will you, will you look at your life with, with kind of honest eyes and ask yourself, do I love money and trust in money too much? Is it governing decisions that are stealing joy and, and wounding my family? And if so, can we, can we lay that down and repent to the Lord? Father, help me. I, I, I don't even know how to reorient anything. We help me find satisfaction in you. I don't even know where to start. I just we start if we find ourselves in that spot just by confessing, Lord, I've been chasing all the wrong things. Will you help me in this? Help me lay down the God of money and look to you as the God who is good and kind. So many live out of a hope of what they can get uh, and how much money they can get. But in this text, there also is the question, what do you neglect in the pursuit of more? What God-given mandate, what God-given responsibility do you neglect and are you blind to? What gifts are you completely unaware of? There's a real sense, especially to, to, to fathers, with the family being all over this, what, what Solomon's message in part of this, anyone can do this, but I'm seeing a ton of fathers blow up families because they're doing it, right? Especially to fathers here, he says. We need to take a long look in the mirror. Are we ignoring our kids? Are we ignoring their hearts? Are we ignoring their faith? Do we begin to learn the deeper reason I don't ever want to work in the kids' classes? I don't believe I have any role in any kid's discipleship, let alone my own. Are we ignoring the gifts that are placed in our hands because we're too busy obsessively chasing stuff? And that stuff that we're chasing while ignoring our kids will never actually give us what we thought. Friends, Many, many, many in the West, my heart included at multiple seasons in my life, have to repent of this. Be careful. That stuff won't give you what you need, but your kids need you. Be so careful. When we stack this up next to the text last week, we begin to hear kind of a larger warning. An uncontrolled striving after wind, after what the world has, will cause us to sin against God the Father by not fearing him, we will not enter his house properly. And many times we won't come hardly at all. I had a talk with a pastor this week and he said the metrics of their church is the average member that they counted comes 1.4 times a month. That is, a, that is a lack of fear of God. So not only will we chase wind, ignore God, sin against God, not enter his house properly, or we'll be too, too strung out mentally to actually be able to focus and hear and worship to where we'll ignore him, sin against him, but then we'll also sin against the, the church family around us and our own family. He's going, you're going to blow every good gift away. right? The Lord and worshiping in the body we get, which we get placed in your fellow brothers and sisters, and then the families that he puts into your hands or the relationships that he puts up in your hands, you will destroy all of this if your love of money is not under control. And by under control, I mean repented of. The call of Jesus is to lay it down and to follow him. 
we, we tie this together with some of these statements that we just, we should probably admit, we just have a hard time trusting Jesus at his word. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I could save 5% too. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd, I'd rather retire early. Come to me and I'll give you yes, rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I could buy that or I could do that or I could. Do we take him at his word? to come and find an escape from our slavery and the joy that our heart is looking for? Or do we not? And I just kind of end and land with those who have ears, let them hear. Will we respond in faith? I, I don't need to try and man, manipulate you with an answer. Hey, will you hear him? Will you hear the loving hand of Jesus saying, hey, come near to me? Band, you guys can come back up. We're gonna take communion this week. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Each day when we come to the table and we worship, first of all, even being here, we're cutting our wind chasing and money chasing going, I'm going to be in your house and not mine. I'm going, to, I'm going to experience your kingdom. I'm not going to build mine. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to worship you and I'm going to see you. I'm going to realign my gaze that you're better than all the stuff that I was chasing this week. And then when you see that your resume is not so bueno, you come to the table and go, and you knew it and Jesus died anyway. And your body and your blood, you were broken for me and your blood is what pays for my sins. Help reorient my gaze. So as we come today, you don't have to be a member to take. We ask that your faith be in Christ though. Let us examine our lives and see how we've walked. If we need to repent or realign, do that. Even in far, as far as especially fathers, like to lead spiritually, sometimes you have to do the hard things. If, if this one hits you between the eyes, you need to confess to your family, I haven't done that well right? Then come to the table and take and go, oh, there's still mercy, even though I fell on my face in that one. Thank the Lord. That's why it says, I keep remembering each day, your body, your work, your blood. My resume doesn't, doesn't save me, but my work sure can destroy me. So let me find my rest in you. I pray that you will do that with me.